Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Samuel Holworth. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I am especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So, if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here is a review from Mamak Shakib, who says, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your podcast is a wealth of information. I listened to it while driving to and from work and wished I could take notes. I am so proud of your work and the work of my research colleagues for the advancement of chiropractic and to scientifically prove the very essence of chiropractic. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Mamak Shakib, for your review, and I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Samuel Holworth. Dr. Samuel Holworth is an Associate Professor, Director of Human Performance Research, and the McMorland Family Research Chair in Mechanobiology at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. He also holds adjunct positions at Ontario Tech University, University of Toronto, and University of Guelph, as well as Memorial University of Newfoundland. Dr. Holworth obtained his PhD in kinesiology from the University of Waterloo in 2011, focusing on biomechanics and more specifically related to the spine. His current research is directed toward biomechanical analysis of human movement, focusing on functional tasks used in daily life and clinical practice. A fundamental component of this work and scientific inquiry in general is measurement and data handling. Once a topic primarily relevant, uh, relevant to researchers, the proliferation of low-cost sensors capable of providing clinicians with a seemingly unimaginable amount of data extends the conversation on the acquisition and interpretation of measurements to the clinical environment. Well, Dr. Horworth, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Dean. I think that we're going to have a little bit of fun with this today. Absolutely. And measurement is such a cool thing, and there's so much to talk about. Uh, but as I do with all of my podcast interviews, I, I'd really like to... Um, to uh, get started with getting to know a little bit more about you. And first, I'd, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to speak to your research group at CMCC this spring. Well, quite frankly, Dean, I should be the one thanking you because the students really enjoyed that session and I feel that they got a lot out of it. You know, um, before we really get into things, the pandemic has actually been beneficial in some ways for doing uh these kinds of activities and you know we've been fortunate to invite speakers from all around the world and expose them to the cmcc students uh, which obviously would not have been something that would have been possible 
in person before the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there there are definitely some some good things, uh, exposures to technologies that we're going to be talking about today, and uh, having a chance to play with some of these things as as there's a little bit of lull in the way things have typically been done. We find new ways to do things for sure. Well, Sam, how did you become interested in biomechanics of the spine, and subsequently? you know, pursuing your PhD at the University of Waterloo? It's an interesting question, Dean, and it's a bit of a story. Um, So I managed to do my undergrad, master's, and PhD all at the University of Waterloo. My Part of my undergrad was a joint honors between mathematics and kinesiology, and what that entailed was regular meetings with the undergraduate chair in the kinesiology department because this was something that hadn't necessarily been done before. Um, conveniently, that person was also the professor for our research methods course. And he he had uh, given me an opportunity or notif- let us know about an opportunity to get involved in research projects. And he kind of pointed me in one of two directions. There was an opportunity to work in biomechanics or in physiology and I am not very good at physiology at all. Um, so I decided to go the biomechanics route and found an opportunity to work with Dr. Stuart McGill as an undergraduate research assistant and really got uh, bit by the research bug and, and loved it from the get-go. Um, ended up then doing my uh, master's or continuing my work with him for my master's and then made the major jump across the hallway to uh, work <laughs> with Dr. Jack Callahan in his lab uh, at UW and, and got a few additional experiences working with um, more in vivo data and, and in vitro data uh, during my PhD. Well, that's really cool. I, you know, perhaps that's where I first came across uh, some of your work was with Dr. Callahan and Dr. McGill. I've certainly read a ton of their their research and and subsequently certainly reading your work I've been fascinated by the types of things you do and uh, so I'm so excited to talk about some of these studies today but I, I still want to learn a little bit more about uh, uh, your past and and you're currently at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College so I'm curious how you made the jump from Waterloo to CMCC and and teaching at a or teaching doing research at a chiropractic school Again, that, that's another interesting story. And there was kind of a, a little stop along the way in my path from UW to CMCC. Uh, towards the end of my PhD, I was uh, contemplating either going on to a postdoc or, or becoming a responsible adult and looking for a job. Um, and I actually ended up following the path of one of my lab mates and began working in an industry at a forensic engineering firm. Uh, this was kind of as I was finishing up my PhD, and a few months shortly after having defended my uh, thesis, I got a call from CMCC asking if I would be interested in applying for their uh, vacant position as the McMorland Family Research Chair. Um, and, and it's been a very interesting experience. Uh, as you know, I'm a non-chiropractor. Um, working inside of a chiropractic academic 
an institution. And there was a really steep learning curve. And so thankfully, I had some really good mentors and still do have some really good mentors within the institution and around the profession uh, that I can lean on whenever I have uh, questions. Awesome. Now, do you teach uh, in addition to doing research or, or, or no? Yes, uh, I mainly teach in the uh, graduate residency program. So the graduate residency program at CMCC is a uh, small program for a group, a select group of students, um, essentially after they've completed their DC degree. I do the odd lecture for uh, some of the biomechanics classes at CMCC, uh, but most of my interactions with the students, at least on the undergraduate side, is through the uh, research projects and the biomechanics research group uh, that you had presented to a couple of months ago. Okay, cool. Now, what does a typical day in the life of Sam look like? I, I have a bit of an idea but uh, what, why don't you tell the listeners, because I think they might be pretty curious and, and some might even be interested in going on to pursue a PhD and, and work within chiropractic doing research later. Yeah, the, the, I guess one of the things that really drew me to research at the outset was the fact that there really is no such thing as a typical day. And I think that you've talked about this in the past with some of your other guests. Obviously, with the pandemic, you know, what I do on a day-to-day basis is very different from what I did before the pandemic uh, started about a year and a half ago. But typically, what it means or what what my uh, job entails is overseeing research projects uh, being conducted both by students and and by other faculty. you know, things do change a little bit from being a graduate student to being a faculty member. Uh, as a graduate student, as you know, and hopefully most of your listeners also will know, is that your job is mainly to be the person doing the research. And uh, when you move on to become a faculty member, your role really changes to where you are now the one responsible for directing and facilitating that research. Um, so that that really is kind of my, my main role and my main focus right now. Got it. Now, I know we're going to be talking about measurement today. And I think that all, all researchers, all scientists uh, sort of get drilled on the ideas of measurement and validity and reliability. And, and we'll be talking about that too. But not... Not everyone is keen on exploring issues in measurement. They sort of take it perhaps for granted, I guess is maybe the best word. Uh, But we're going to be illuminating some of these uh, concepts today. How did you become interested in in exploring issues surrounding measurement? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You know, measurement is one of those things that, um, let's be honest, it, it's not something that is that funders are interested in. Um, you're very difficult to go and have a very difficult time getting funding uh, for measurement studies. But they are, or measurements are a critical piece of any scientific research uh, or any uh, research for that matter. I really had, uh, when I was reflecting on this, I was thinking that, you know, I had an interest in measurement from a very early 
time in my in my research career. Uh, and it, I think that really gets back to my uh, joint interests in kinesiology and mathematics. You know, my initial interests were with respect to data handling and signal processing. And just to kind of explain a little bit about what that means is that the data that we collect in the lab, in biomechanics labs, as you as you, you well know, is often very useless in its very in its raw form. And what we have to do as researchers or as investigators is go through a number of steps that are required to treat and transform the data into something that resembles, you know, the dependent measures that you see reported in the journal papers. And something that irked me a little bit or, or that I come across uh, regularly or had come across regularly was the apparent lack of standardization for these uh, procedures or these uh, data processing or handling procedures. So I developed a natural interest in trying to develop some of these procedures or, or standardize some of, some of the handling procedures um, for, for, uh, for the studies that I was doing during my graduate studies. Got it. Yeah. Also, Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I also, I also realized quite early on that it was possible then to publish these, uh, these analyses or these pro these methodological approaches, um, which, you know, again, was another, uh, benefit when, when it, as a graduate student, um, you know, my interest in, in measurement have kind of migrated a little bit from this area since starting at CMCC, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, later. Great. Um, now, you've published uh, in a lot of excellent journals, uh, and I've enjoyed reading them. Uh, I certainly haven't read all of your papers, but I've, I've read uh, uh, probably a good chunk of them over the last uh, decade. And You've you've published in in many different fields, uh, biomechanics, uh, chiropractic measurement, uh, for instance. Can can you give us a, just a brief overview, uh, I suppose, of some of the some of the topics that you're particularly keen on, um, and you know what what interests you the most these days? It sounds like measurement, but uh, but you're using measurement in the context of skills that you've learned. So I, I just like to hear you talk about that a little bit. Exactly, Me measurement is kind of a fundamental or, or a very uh, prominent interest for me at the moment. But if I was to actually describe what my research interests are these days, it's really related to understanding movement, uh, how people move, why people move the way that they do, um, and kind of connected or tied to the idea of. Uh, being able to collect data from people as people are performing uh, what has been called functional movements. So these are things like, um, you know, gait, uh, sit to stand movements, those types of things. Awesome. I, well, I really love the functional aspect of things. Maybe that's why we get along so well. <laughs> that's what my interests are too, as you know. Um, yeah, very, very well maybe. <laughs> so, before we get into the articles, I I want to give a little bit of a an overview as to some of the basic concepts involved in measurement. 
there's a broad range of listeners, uh, typically for these podcasts from chiropractors, probably mostly, uh, other health providers, the general public, and and uh, certainly uh, students at uh, the university that I make listen to these. <laughs> and uh, so they may be listening as well. So I'm going to define uh, some of these terms uh, as we go through, but uh, I think it's important to realize that first uh, in research or, or clinical practice, I suppose, uh, in order to tell whether there are differences beha- between behaviors or outcomes uh, that we expect, whether it's back pain or whatnot, we need to measure. And so fundamentally, things come down to measurement. We use measurement as a way to understand things, to evaluate them, and again, to determine differences in any treatments or outcomes. It allows us to provide a degree of precision in this understanding. For for instance, uh, uh, Dr. Howarth is going to talk about a shoulder study coming up, and we could document that a patient's shoulder range of motion, let's say uh, to 80 degrees, uh, is, is a measurement, I guess we could say, and that, uh, you know, sometimes clinician might, clinicians might say, well, it's limited, uh, or we might use other, I guess, more qualitative terms, but measurement can involve a degree of precision. And that's oftentimes what we're going after in research. Measurement is necessary to determine cause and effect, uh, or simply a relationship between two or more variables. Measurement is necessary to document change, and it's used for decision-making in clinical care, more importantly. Health professionals use patient-reported outcome measures, such as neck disability index, or clinician-reported outcome measures, such as range of motion or muscle strength. And again, we use these things to progress people through care. Uh, With measurement, oftentimes we're assigning numbers to variables like range of motion or heart rate. This can be tricky because some constructs are not directly observable, uh, perhaps like uh, the construct of intelligence or health. Uh, Others certainly are more directly observable, again, like having someone move their arm through space. Uh, So it's important when measuring to have operational definitions, in other words, how the variable is going to be measured. If we're talking about muscular strength, for instance, we could measure with a dynamometer, a fancy tool to to get uh, the degree of force being applied to a, a tool. We could have people lift weights or we could do manual muscle testing as examples. Furthermore, the usefulness of measurement depends on the context to which the data is accurate and meaningful regarding a given behavior or attribute. And here, reliability and validity, two terms that we're going to be uh, talking about further, especially reliability, Uh, are the most basic aspects of measurement. Reliability is the extent to which measurement is consistent and free from bias or error. Uh, You can think of reliability as reproducibility or dependability, I suppose. A reliable instrument would perform with predictable consistency. And then validity assures that the test is measuring what we intend it to measure. In other words, the right construct. So both validity and reliability are fundamental to being able for us uh, as clinicians or as researchers uh, to make conclusions. And uh, so hopefully that gives us a little bit of a, a background to get started. Um, is that uh, Does that sound about right, Dr. Holworth? Uh, any additional comments about some of those basic terms? 
No, I, I think that you really hit the nail on the head there and did a really good job of kind of defining some of those concepts. There's just a couple of things, though, that I wanted to touch upon. And I think that you mentioned it in the uh, very kind introduction that you gave to me um, that the, you know, the measurements. Um, we're talking about them today in the context of research studies, but they're not necessarily confined to the research domain. You know, measurements are routinely made in clinical practice. Um, and so as clinicians being mindful or paying attention to the way in which those measurements are being taken or, or understanding something about those measurements um, and their properties, you know, the reliability and validity uh, is imperative. The, the other thing that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned uh, is with respect to constructs and operational definitions for those constructs. And um, I believe you might have, uh, you, you brought up intelligence as, as one of the uh, constructs. But in the spaces that you and I uh, deal with in human movement studies, you know, an example of a construct where I can think of at least three or four different ways of operationalizing it. So being able to quantify uh, the construct um, exists. You know, coordination is, is a perfect example of that, where I can think of at least three different published ways that I've seen coordination operationalized in the literature. So, you know, that was just something I wanted to, to add to, uh, to your discuss your description there yeah no i i think that's a beautiful way to to talk about it because as you mentioned there are so many different ways to measure coordination and the thing of it is is you come away from some of these research papers and somebody's using a a measure of coordination sometimes i think did they just come up with this on their own because i've never seen it reported anywhere and then and then the conclusion goes something like this well the coordination changed as a result of XXX, you know, YYYZ. Uh, and you're left thinking about it, uh, well, th this is the first time I've ever seen that coordination as defined that way operationally. So can I be really certain that it changed coordination or is this something else? <laughs> you know? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's maybe taking us down a slightly different path, you know, not necessarily talking about measurement, but uh, just to add to that, you know, you would hope that the investigators or the authors of that paper would provide some reference or some uh, citation back to a uh, back back to a previous paper or some other uh, group that has employed that approach to quantifying coordination. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think all of this uh, discussion so far has is, is got us in a pretty good path to now talk about uh, the research that you've done in relationship to, to measurement as well. Uh, we'll get to a chiropractic related paper too. Um, and so the, the first study that I want uh, you to discuss is one that's called investigator analytic repeatability of two new intervertebral motion biomarkers for chronic nonspecific low back pain in a cohort of healthy controls. And this is published uh, in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies in uh, 2020. So Sam, could you uh, briefly walk us through, through this paper? Yeah, um, 
before I get into this particular paper, I just wanted to point out, Dean, that the lead author of all three of these papers that we're going to be discussing today uh, were students at CMCC. Two of them were residents, and the third uh, was an undergraduate student, actually, at the time. Uh, they've all obviously since graduated and moved on. Um, but that was just something that I really wanted to, to point out, is that uh, this, the students were the ones that really uh, were responsible for driving the, these projects. So the, the first study here uh, really is a collaboration or between uh, myself, other researchers at CMCC, and uh, Drs. Alex and Alan Breen from AECC. Um, I'm going to probably defer any questions related to the technical aspects of quantitative fluoroscopy, which this project was uh, derived from, uh, to them. Uh, hopefully they don't mind me doing that because I am certainly not an expert in that, in, in that uh, area. But generally, the, the premise for this particular study is that the uh, quantitative fluoroscopy has been used over a number of years and you know from the work that the Breens have done there have been a number of different uh, measures produced and studies showing you know differences in some uh, some measures between people with and without low back pain and and different uh, pathologies of the spine and that kind of stuff more recently they've been working on two particular variables, one called motion sharing inequality and motion sharing variability. And just briefly, based on my understanding, at least of, of these variables, the motion sharing inequality is related to the range or the, the inequality of movement between vertebral levels uh, throughout a motion. So if we're thinking about spine flexion, the underlying premise is that the total motion of the lumbar spine would be reasonably equally divided between the between the uh, individual vertebral levels and that would be an indication of low motion sharing inequality obviously high motion sharing inequality would be if there was you know excessively large movements at any one uh, level or, or discrepant movements between the levels uh, throughout throughout the motion. Motion sharing variability is just the, the extent to which the, um, the, the motion is kind of uh, more variable. So this is really the standard deviation of the motion sharing inequality. So just, just to provide a little bit of a definition for those two variables that we're interested in, in understanding here. The other thing that I understand about the quantitative fluoroscopy process is that there is, in fact, some user intervention that is required. So the process by which the measurements are obtained in, involves involves some uh, the the investigator to, to intervene at some point, and this is after the the images have 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 been acquired. And so, what we were interested in with this particular study is, you know, to what extent does the investigator 
have an impact or in, can influence the the outcomes. So these two um, these two variables, motion sharing inequality and motion sharing variability. And really, what we did was we set out to do your standard inter and intra-rater reliability study. So we had our student um, who marked up or or provided um, an analysis or did an analysis of 30 uh, quantitative fluoroscopy image sequences on two separate occasions. And then we had a second um, investigator who had done had uh, done the same process once. And what we were interested in is kind of what is the consistency between the two investigators and also within an investigator, you know, how, how consistent are things. What we were able to find or what we demonstrated was that there certainly was not perfect agreement. Um, the intra-investigator reliability was around 0.9 for motion sharing inequality and 0.78 for motion sharing variability. So that suggests that the, the, the reliability, at least within an investigator, was, was pretty reasonable. There was pretty good inter in, in investigator uh, reliability for the um, for for the motion sharing inequality, I believe, um, but not so not so good for the motion sharing variability. And, and then when you when you express those um, reliability estimates or, or take those reliability estimates in the, in conjunction with the uh, standard deviations and, and you're able to determine the standard error of measurement, which is basically the measurement error induced by the process or um, the standard error of measurements were in the range of 10 to 30% of the group means. Got it. So <clears throat> based upon uh, what you found then, what what would you suggest uh, would be of some clinical importance or practical importance from the study? Yeah. So, from 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 a clinical standpoint, I think you know, understanding that the measurements are are subject to some kind of uh, variability or some kind of error induced. Uh, by the, the investigator. So when you read studies that are, say, comparing between populations, so I'll use, um, you know, people, patients with chronic nonspecific low back pain and comparing them against uh, a population without low back pain, um, understanding that those particular measure, measurements that are reported are subject to a number of different errors, not just related to the instrument itself, but that the investigator might have some kind of uh, impact on on the errors of those measurements. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, something like uh, you know, if the I'm just coming up with something off the top of my head, but if if an investigator has uh, pain one day you know, just like in their hand, for example, and they're going about moving this person in the study that you did, uh, that might affect perhaps the way that they move 
the person or the way that they interact, uh, just as an example. I mean, there's so many things exactly. that could impact. Exactly. And I, I didn't mention it before, but you know, the process for deriving the data or, or determining the data that is used to calculate these motion sharing variables um, inherently involves an investigator looking at a computer screen and digitizing the corners of the vertebral bodies. And, and so that's kind of what we were, we were interested in is to the extent to which, you know, an investigator is able to repeatedly identify those, those corners. And as you probably know from, from your experience in clinical practice, you know, these images are not often, you know, perfectly crisp and clear images where the, where the borders and, and the corners of these vertebral bodies are, are clearly defined. And one person's definition or determination of a corner might be different from another person's. Uh, so that's really kind of what we're, what we're interested in with this particular study. Got it. Now, with this particular study, the the subjects were in the recumbent or sideline position, um, and I'm just going to ask you to hypothesize here. But uh, what what do you think the reliability might do when you're encountering people with either pain uh, in one case, or or perhaps even checking people in the standing posture? Right. So. I, I guess the first thing that I'll reiterate is that any questions related to video fluoroscopy and, and that technique, uh, I'll defer to the brains because they're, they're much more uh, familiar with, with that particular technology and, and instrumentation. Um, you know, when, when we're talking about comparing between the recumbent position and uh, upright standing, for example, you know, the idea, the, the reason that the patients or participants are laid in a recumbent position is to effectively eliminate the need for the muscles to um, support support the weight of the upper body as it as it's moving. Um, so effectively, what you're able to do is have these patients or participants laying on their side on a movable table and the table then passively moves them through the range of motion. And so what you're able to assess essentially are some of the passive characteristics of the spine or the vertebral column. When you go to standing, obviously, the the difference there is that now the muscles are required to support support the upper body if you're doing any kind of movement away from, uh, from the neutral posture. And so that will then have an impact obviously on the mechanical properties or the the properties joint properties of of the vertebral joints um, in particular when you know when you activate the muscles or when the muscles become active the force produced by those muscles also induces additional stiffness through the joints and can can change the way in which the the individual joints behave and i think believe that the Breens have done some more work on this. Uh, the one, the work that I'm most familiar with is from uh, Deirdre Tayen, uh back around 2007, where they uh, did a little bit of this work in upright standing with, with population of uh, patients with low back pain. But our discussion in the paper does in fact make note of some of the differences in motion sharing variability that have been identified between patients with 
chronic nonspecific low back pain and the healthy controls uh, during the standing forward flexion. Okay, that's great. And I'll make sure to put links to each of these articles so uh, interested uh, listeners can check those out for themselves. Um, uh, the next article I wanted to get to uh, was again talking about reliability. It's a really fascinating paper, I think, for um, researchers and clinicians, particularly clinicians, actually, I think. Uh, and this is called Intercession Reliability of Glenohumeral Internal and External Rotation Range of Motion Measurements. Um, it's unaffected by use of applied load feedback. And this is in the journal Measurement in Physical Education and Exercise Science, 2020. Uh, so again, I, I wonder if you could tell us about this paper uh, and its significance. Right. So what I, what I would probably say is that first paper that we discussed or the paper we just finished discussing uh, is kind of more related to my initial interests in measurement and how the data is handled or processed after it's been collected. This particular paper or study is more related to, as you mentioned, you know, the clinical utility of some of these measurements. And really, it was kind of an interesting uh, way in which this project came about. So Chris Grant was the resident working on this project, and he had a natural interest in baseball and, and, uh, and throwing sports. And in our some of our initial discussions, we got Chris brought up the um, the idea or the, the evidence or the literature that said that there was a uh, a five degree side to side difference in shoulder range of motion i believe it was that you know identified a particular athlete as being at greater risk of uh, sustaining some kind of upper extremity injury and as we're talking about this, he and I um, naturally came around to some of these issues in measurement. You know, what is the reliability of, of a range of motion measurement? What is, um, you know, what what are the measurement errors? And, and what we actually arrived at was that, interestingly, even though reliability estimates, so those are your interclass correlation coefficients, had been reported, we couldn't find any real reports or, or estimates for the standard error of measurement, which would tell you a little bit about what you could expect in the way of, of measurement error. And when we kind of, you know, did our own calculations based on what had been published from the ICCs and some of the standard deviations of these measurements, we realized that really the standard error of measurement was in fact kind of within the range of the proposed injury risk cutoff. And so naturally that that raised some alarm bells with us. And so we set out to try and figure out, see if there was a way that we could in fact reduce that um, that measurement error as, as well as to determine whether or not our calculations were in fact uh, accurate or correct. And so what we did here was re we recruited a population of male only, so that that's one limitation there is that this is um, only in a population of male recreational overhead athletes. And so what we defined as overhead athletes were really anybody that participated in throwing sports. So these are, you know, baseball, volleyball, tennis, softball, uh, water polo, 
those, those kinds of uh, those kinds of sports. And we had participants come in on separate days, so approximately one week apart. And we basically we took measurements of their internal and external rotation range of motion at the glenohumeral joint uh, under two conditions. So we had one where the person applying or performing the passive range of motion was provided with some feedback about the amount of force that they're putting in, because obviously, as you know, you know, the more force you put into the joint, the more motion that you're going to get out of it. Uh, and so we felt that being able to standardize or maintain a consistent amount of load going through the joint would in some way possibly uh, help us to improve the reliability uh, of, of the range of motion measurements. The other condition was a, a no feedback condition. And our hypothesis essentially was that the use of load as a feedback or provide, providing load as feedback to the person performing the passive range of motion measurements would improve the uh, the ICCs or the reliability and then would which would then result in a reduction of the standard error measurement. Unfortunately, we didn't find what we thought we would find. Uh, so the load feedback or providing the, the clinician with feedback did not improve the uh, reliability of the estimates or, or of the measurements. It also then did not improve the standard error measurement. Um, but if you are able to look at the, the paper or look at look at the abstract, and for the listeners, this one is not uh, discoverable on PubMed, unfortunately. But the ICCs from the no feedback condition were also pretty good, which essentially meant that our clinician was actually pretty pretty uh, repeatable at, at performing or. or um, doing the range of motion uh, measure uh, tasks or, or passively moving the participants' arms. Uh, so, you know, that might have pointed to some kind of a ceiling effect there where we, we really didn't have much room for improvement. Got it. The um, And by the way, uh, you mentioned that it wasn't discoverable on PubMed. Uh, I, I'll put the direct link to the uh, journal paper so that people can find it uh, in the notes, show notes. Um, so, yeah, this is, I think it's a really neat article um, and you described it really well. So thanks for uh, summarizing that. I, I do want to chat about a couple of things that I think have particularly uh, clinical relevance. You'd mentioned that just the, you know, the five degrees that we were talking about, about shoulder rotation, five degree difference that is between uh, left and right shoulder uh, can mean the difference between estimating a potential future injury or not having a future injury. Uh, and then with the results, you know, finding that uh, the standard errors can be, well, they are within that range. Um, I guess the standard error did go up to as high as six, but they're, they're certainly within that range of the five degrees. Uh, it, it gets me to asking, uh, I guess potentially a few questions, uh, clinically, 
Um, and then, and then the way in which clinicians go about doing the measurements. I mean, when, when you do the study and I've looked at the paper, it's very, uh, particular, it's very explicit. And I fear that clinicians, um, who would never read a paper like this would just go about doing some motions and measuring stuff. <laughs> I'll just say measuring stuff. Um, and, uh, and maybe not achieve the level of precision that you would have achieved here. Uh, for example, like you had one hand on the forearm, one hand that was stabilizing the scapula. And I think this is great technique. And in the research realm, you know, we spend a lot of time, we, we have people do practice trials to get practice effects out of the way and, you know, free up their degrees of freedom and get them warmed up and whatever other terms we want to do. But in clinical practice, I can tell you uh, that, you know, when, when I'm the researcher, I got my research cap on in some cases, right? And I'm thinking about doing all this stuff and, you know, that takes time. And uh, clinicians, uh, bless their hearts, they just don't have that, you know, five, six minutes or, you know, even a minute extra, it seems to, to do some of this stuff. But I guess, fortunately, your results also point to the idea that uh, you don't have to do a hundred different measurements either. Um, so anyways, hopefully some of that makes sense. I don't know if I'm just uh, blabbing here, but uh, uh, maybe you can uh, pick up on some of those points. Yeah, no, you raised several very valid and, and good points. And, and certainly, you know, one of the things that I benefit from in these partnerships with the residents is that these are these are individuals who do have clinical experience. And so, you know, when we design these studies, there always is a conversation about, okay, so how does this relate back to what you might see or do in, in clinical practice. And so, you know, the, the way in which we went about performing the individual passive range of motion measures, I feel is fairly representative of what happens in clinic. Certainly the way in which we measured the range of motion using the uh, motion capture systems um, were, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced or, or more uh, sophisticated than what, what might be done in clinical practice. One thing that's not mentioned here in the paper, and it was really only not mentioned because other we would have, you know, 8,000 word manuscript, uh, is that we in fact did obtain measures using just your standard goniometer. Uh, we also had measures obtained using a uh, an inclinometer, essentially using somebody's, somebody's cell phone. The reason we chose to focus on only one of the three ways of measuring was that really the results ended up all being fairly similar or, or the same. Um, so when, when we do design these studies or we come up with these studies, there is always a discussion about kind of how can we make this relevant or, or applicable to the clinic. I wanted to start off with talking about the the, this proposed five degree cutoff. And when it was initially proposed, it was stated as a five degree difference from one side to the other. So that's, you know, a five degree difference between left and right shoulders. And when you actually look at 
the other papers, nobody ever reports what the side-to-side difference is. They report the mean for the right side, they report the mean for the left side, and then they take a difference of those two uh, those two scores. And certainly that that's equivalent when you look at averages, but it has uh, there is a little bit of a difference uh, when it comes to assessing or de- determining variability. So one of the things that we mentioned or reported in our study was in fact the side to side difference the reliability of those measurements and the standard error measurement for the the difference measures or the difference scores you also you also brought up a few other points about the opportunity or the use of say multiple measurements and um, you know something that we did in this particular study was that we had uh, the clinician perform some preconditioning trials. And so what this does is this essentially will um, normalize or stabilize some of the passive tissue properties. And this is really a, a throwback to some of the the in vitro work that I used to do uh, during my PhD, where you know, if we were to assess the passive properties of cadaveric tissue, we would have to precondition the specimen with a few cycles of loading before we actually got consistent and repeatable uh, data results. So the idea here was that we would precondition the joint um, before actually collecting collecting our measures. And one of the things, another thing that we were interested in here was um, whether or not we would need to collect multiple trials. So the idea that you would collect multiple range of motion trials from a particular patient uh, and then collapse them to an average because the idea of averaging multiple trials is that you would kind of get closer to a, a better, or you would arrive at a better estimate of the true value of, of the range of motion. Whether or not you would need to actually collect multiple trials, or if you could just get away with doing one trial, because as you mentioned, you know, time is time is valuable in clinical practice. And, and I don't feel that it's often the practice to, uh, to do those multiple measures. Um, fortunately, what we found was that, you know, the reliability is just as good with a single measure as it as it is with an average of multiple measurements. Yeah, that's uh, that's good news. I think for clinicians uh, when they're contemplating doing these types of measures, for sure, and to know that the reliability is is uh, pretty much the same between you know, let's say a hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollar set of equipment uh, with the cameras and uh, eight dollar goniometer. <laughs> for example, that a clinician could forward and uh, put in their practice. So uh, very valuable stuff. I, I really appreciated reading that and I appreciate you going through and, and discussing uh, your findings with us. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, d- I do want to uh, follow up on, um, on something that perhaps is not discussed enough as it should be, uh, at least in my opinion. And that is that, you know, we could, we could talk about clinicians and that there's variability between clinicians, but there's always uh, variability between researchers and scientists as well. Not all scientists agree 
with everything. And um, so that, this gets me to uh, my next point, which is, and I'll just use an example here in this last year with the emergence of uh, COVID-19. We've seen all sorts of interesting scientific studies come out in the peer-reviewed literature, even non-peer-reviewed. We've seen an explosion of what are called preprints that aren't peer-reviewed, but they get published nonetheless. Um, and we've seen more retractions uh, than I can recall uh, from fairly prominent journals. Uh, we've seen countries that have assessed the exact same peer-reviewed literature uh, and chosen whether or not to impose lockdowns or similar measures. We see an implementation of treatment strategies or, or no treatment strategies. Um, there's tons of variability with, uh, I guess that's my point. There's tons of variability with the way people are interpreting data measurement issues. And, uh, these are, these are coming into full light, uh, for just the average person looking at all the news and we're just bombarded with all of this stuff. Um, so I guess that brings me to my point of how should clinicians or chiropractors, healthcare practitioners try to assess the use of measurement when sometimes, uh, the people that are doing the research that they're relying on disagree and, how how should we proceed in given situations like that? I, I know that's a heavy question, <laughs> so, uh, but maybe you can try to answer it. Yeah, isn't that interesting, you know, that as researchers, we effectively, everyone has their opinion, and it's a very opinionated bunch uh, that we are. Um, and, and, you know, science is very rarely black and white. Um, there are all kinds of different shades of gray. And when there are shades of gray, that means that things are open to different interpretations. Um, I, I think part of what you mentioned also speaks to uh, something that we discussed earlier. And that's really that, you know, the interpretation can in fact sometimes be dependent upon the process by which the data is analyzed. And I think this is where looking towards some of the syntheses of evidence, so these are your systematic reviews, meta-analyses, uh, can be very helpful when, you know, looking at a particular measurement and whether or not it's a good measurement or not. Um, in particular, you know, there are uh, re reviews that would focus on properties of measurement, such as reliability and validity. You know, ultimately, though, I think that making measurements in clinical practice is fine. I think that it happens all the time, obviously. Um, but something that might be important for clinicians to understand is, you know, some of the limitations around those measurements and to really not rely solely on measurements uh, or, or give a disproportionate amount of weight to them uh, in your clinical decisions. You know, I like to draw analogies back to athletics or, or the sporting world and, you know, the, the explosion of the analytic uh, approach to uh, athlete assessment or athlete um, performance really has, has driven sport into being reliant on data. Um, and, and what I would like to probably caution people against is that they don't forget clinicians, that they don't forget the other pillars of evidence-based practice model, uh, which, you know, are the clinical, their clinical experience and, and really the patient preference. 
um, and not being so um, disproportionate or not giving such a disproportionate amount of weight to measurements or data. Well, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up because we have to put this in the bigger picture of things. Like you say, with evidence-based practice, we're focused on on the science and the implementation of it. And we realize that there's variability in, in each of those aspects of just the one pillar. Uh, and then we certainly have to consider those other two pillars as well. So thanks for... Uh, Bringing that up, I think that's a super, super important point. We get caught up sometimes in the details and uh, and we forget to think about the broader picture of things. So fantastic. Uh, there's one other paper I'd love you to, to talk about. This is a uh, chiropractic-related paper, uh, but it also deals with, with measurement. And uh, it's titled, Does Manual Therapy Affect Functional and Biomechanical Outcomes of a Sit-to-Stand Task? in a population with low back pain, this uh, preliminary analysis, also from chiropractic and manual therapies. So I wonder if you could tell us about this paper. Yeah, so uh, obviously this is a uh, an experimental study. It's actually a secondary analysis of a data set that was collected by our colleagues um, down at Denver University. Uh, so the, if you're looking for the paper, you find the paper um, those would be Drs. Curry and Ebo and Davidson. Uh, they were really the ones responsible for collecting the data. And I had seen uh, Dr. Curry present some of their primary work or the, the primary work from this data set at a conference. Um, and they had made mention of the fact that they obtained uh, or had participants perform a series of tasks, um, you know, sit to stand was one of them that we obviously chose to analyze or, or focus on for this particular project. But they had participants perform a number of these different types of functional movements, both before and after a manual therapy intervention. And the reason that we've phrased it as a manual therapy intervention, and I'm going to borrow terminology from our, my, my student who worked on this project, John Carlo, uh, manual therapy in this sense was a mishmash between both the both mobilizations and manipulations. So each patient or each participant in this study received two mobilizations and two manipulations. Um, so when we're looking at the outcomes, you know the, the changes in both the biomechanical and the functional outcomes, we really can't relate them specifically to one intervention or the other, uh, really all we can say is that there was a difference that uh, occurred following this, uh, this intervention, which was a combination of the mobilizations and manipulations. As I mentioned, this was a secondary analysis of data and really it was, the, the intent was to see if there were any see if there were functional changes um, that might occur following manual therapy and, and really related to the hypothesis or the theories that, um, you know, manual therapy affects supposedly discrepant neuromuscular uh, control and movement that's observed in people with low back pain. Um, certainly there's been 
a number of neurophysiological studies showing things like increased uh, motor drive and force outputs, changes in rate of force production in muscles uh, following manipulation. Um, but really, it still remains unclear if the manual therapy affects the ability of people to perform or control movements in daily life. And so uh, this was a convenient uh, data set to do a, uh, an analysis with. Um, obviously, given that this is a secondary analysis of some existing data, I think that it's worth mentioning there should be probably some uh, follow-up to see if that we can, in fact, replicate these results. And the results really found that after the manual therapy intervention, the patients who were in this study used a larger amount of sagittal plane range of motion, so that's uh, in the flexion extension axis, um, after the manual therapy intervention. Also, the amount of time it took them to stand up from the sitting uh, position decreased. And so if you're thinking about a uh, five-cycle sit-to-stand test or the 30-second chair-stand test, obviously decreasing the amount of time to change or transition uh, from a, a sitting posture to a standing posture would be perceived or, or interpreted as an improvement in, in function or an improvement in functional capacity. Um, what I should also mention is that we, the participants in this particular study did not complete one of those two um, tasks that are used more in clinic, which is the five cycle or the 30 second uh, chair stand test. Um, instead, they only completed a single uh, sit to stand movement, which was basically have, having a participant stand up from a sitting seated position. The changes are, are relatively small. And so when we talk about measurements and, and, and measurement errors, uh, the, the overall increase in lumbar sagittal range of motion was only 2.7 degrees or just over 2 degrees. Um, and obviously the time to completion of the test was a, a single cycle was 0.4 seconds. Um, and if you were to look at the variability of those measures, the, the variability is obviously uh, within the range. Nonetheless, it was statistically significant. Um, however, the functional significance or the functional importance of these findings um, is, is something that maybe would be elucidated through, through further study. Great. I, I really appreciate you going through this. I, I'm totally biased, I'll say, uh, toward this kind of investigation. Um, my research uh, is particularly geared toward looking at behavioral or macroscopic level of analysis, uh, you know, what people do, their daily activities. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of things that our research can, can do in this space. So when I saw this, I was super excited uh, by it. And uh, there, there's a lot, as you mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, research that I think could be done in this area, but uh, it was great to see this. And I think a fantastic um, secondary analysis of a data set that you had. And in this, in this study, you used um, research grade motion capture uh, as well, fairly uh, expensive uh, type of system. And 
you know, in, in society these days, there's, there's all sorts of plethora of gadgets and technologies that we're faced with. Um, I was hoping that we could, uh, have a conversation a bit about, about that, about all the, you know, measurement tools, if you will, or gadgets, uh, that are out there. Uh, some of them are not very expensive. Some are super expensive. Practitioners are buying these things, uh, whether there's great research or, or not. Uh, and then the, I guess the question is, you know, what will some of these technologies offer clinicians? Are they going to be useful or are they just going to be a, a fad type of thing? Um, so lots of things to, to think about. And in our context, we were talking about reliability, validity. There's you know, when clinicians go to purchase these things, I would highly recommend that they consider some of these measurement properties that we've talked about today before they spend their hard-earned dollars. But I'm curious what you think, Dr. Holworth, about this idea of all the amazing amount of stuff that we're subjected to with technology these days. Absolutely. I mean, it's astounding. The uh, the accessibility or the availability of this type of technology. I, you know, I think back to when I started in research and what existed at that point, even just kind of 15 years ago. And none of this would have been possible, uh, you know, 15 years ago, but it seems that the, you know, the technology is advanced to the point where, you know, really motion capture systems or motion capture technology emg uh, systems you know they are in fact accessible to to clinicians um, and certainly there are countless number of systems and ins instruments uh, that can provide people with an unimaginable amount of data um, so you know there are obviously a few things that i think you know, practitioners may want to, to consider uh, before they decide on, you know, exactly which tool might be right for them. And, and really, even before they decide on, you know, what is the right tool, I think the first question that someone should ask themselves is, you know, what is the intended purpose of the, the tool and how might those measurements uh, that come from that device impact their particular practice and the management of their patients? Um, you know, the, the second thing is the cost of these devices. Um, you know, that obviously has to be a consideration. You mentioned, you know, these motion capture systems or motion capture suites that we use in research and how they, you know, they cost in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. Um, but you can purchase a couple of inertial motion units at relatively cheaply or relative, relatively inexpensively. Um, and, and and then you would obviously have to get some software uh, as well to, to go along with that. What I would also urge practitioners or anyone looking into some of these lower cost systems or, or trying to embed more measurement devices in, in their practice uh, is to really do some research on the device. Um, you know, anytime you listen or talk to a company rep about their product, they'll tell you exactly how it's the most appropriate thing for them or for you. Um, but, you know, what you need to be aware of is that selling you on their device is 
a part of their job. And so I think that, you know, being critical of, of the device and, and trying to dig and understand it a little bit more is important. You know, so think about reaching out to some of the colleagues or researchers that, you know, may have, in fact, used that particular device. Um, ask them what their experiences have been like. What are some of the limitations of it? Um, you know, what did they find that they liked about it? What didn't they like? Those kinds of things. Uh, because really, that information could be very valuable. Uh, and then if you can, also check the technical specifications um, or re request a live demo. Uh, to trial the instrumentation. This is something that I will routinely do if we're trying to uh, incorporate a new piece of equipment or new piece of technology in our lab is that I will ask the company, can you give me a loaner for a little bit? And can I demo it? Or can you bring somebody in and give me a demonstration uh, before I actually make a decision on this? Because, you know, they're, they're major investments or they can there's substantial investments so you want to make sure that you do your uh, due diligence and, and make sure that you're getting kind of what is the right thing for you sam those were great points i really appreciate that because uh the last thing i'd want somebody to do is go out and spend a bunch of money on something that's not going to get them towards their purpose towards uh whatever they're trying to measure in their office so I appreciate you going through all of that. Um, Sam, what kind of studies are you planning uh, in the future here? What What's capturing your attention these days? Yeah, so I guess, you know, COVID's really thrown a wrench into everyone's lives and everyone's plans. Um, you know, we've had the lab shut down for the better part of the last year and a bit. Uh, we're just now starting to kind of get things opened up and, and running again with data collections. So that, that's quite exciting. Um, in particular, you know, we're, we're looking at continuing some of these studies focused on movement and looking at changes in movement patterns post-treatment, as well as trying to understand um you know, what I said at, at the outset, you know, understanding a little bit more about kind of the constraints on people's movement and how people organize their, their movement strategies or their movement solutions. Um, because effectively, whenever you're asking somebody to perform a movement task, that is what is often referred to as a movement problem. And it's subject to some constraints that are imposed on that person, uh, either internally by themselves or by the experimenters, um, you know, where we're, we're trying to um, tease out some, some of the, the interaction, interactions between those, um, those task environmental and personal constraints. Uh, so those, those are kinds of the, the in broad strokes, I guess, are the studies that we're planning on on pursuing in the future. That's great. Yeah, again, I'm I'm totally biased toward that. So I I look forward to reading all of these great studies that you'll be producing here in the in the future. So I'll keep in touch and uh, probably be asking you for copies <laughs> going forward. So <laughs> appreciate that. Um, so Sam, a uh, goal of this podcast as you may know, is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to at least consider a, a career in chiropractic research, if nothing else, just to broaden their horizon and learn more about the science of things. 
stuff that they, you know, incorporate into practice, like range of motion and uh, the, the types of things sit to stand that we talked about today. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors, health, health professional students uh, who wish to become scientists or researchers in the future? Yeah, I, I love that question that you asked, Dean. And, uh, you know, having listened to some of your previous episodes or previous podcasts, um, you know, I, I knew that this question was coming. And so I really don't think that my advice is any different or, or greatly different from that of any of your, from your previous questions, from your previous guests. Um, you know, if you have an interest and you want to become involved in research, reach out, ask people questions, you know, get involved, don't fi- figure out ways to, to contact a researcher or, or get involved um, in doing research. And it can be even as simple as, you know, for students, they're often our participants in, in a lot of our studies, um, you know, volunteer to be a participant in a study, um, get in, just just find ways to get involved. You know, if you're looking to actually conduct research projects, don't be afraid of what might appear to be a very steep learning curve. Um, you know, that that learning curve, it, it can be rather steep, but, you know, understand that there are people that you can reach out to and that you can lean on for some some kind of guidance and assistance and and as researchers faculty researchers that's part of our goal or part of our uh, job is is to help mentor and guide people uh, to do to be involved in research you know researchers we may be in a bit of an awkward bunch uh, but we're we're not scary people or at least most of us aren't um, and by and large I, I find that researchers are genuine in their their uh, willingness or desire to, to help. You know, the only kind of caveat that I would possibly provide to the, this kind of advice is that, you know, research is not something that, uh, or certainly is something that demands a lot of attention and a commitment. Um, and so make sure that if you are to uh, pursue or get involved in research, that you, you know, think about it ahead of time and go in with your eyes open, understanding kind of what the commitment entails and, and what and what's involved there. Well, Dr. Holworth, this, uh, this has been a real pleasure of mine to have you on the podcast. Uh, and I appreciate you taking the time out of uh, your day to, to educate us and uh, and the listeners as to uh, the things that are related to measurement, uh, some of your studies, uh, ways that we can incorporate this into practice, and some some cautions, uh, if you will, of of what we may want to look for or not look for in terms of the cool technologies that are out these days. Uh, some of them are cool but may not be useful. Uh, some of them may be really useful and you may not even know about them until you do a little bit of research and, and trying to find the right, you know, the right technologies that, that meet your demands. Uh, so thank you again for, for everything that you've shared with the audience. Oh, no, thanks so much for having me on Dean. I think that, you know, it was really, really fun. And I certainly appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to Dr. Samuel Holworth on this episode of Chiropractic Science. I look forward to bringing you more great episodes in the future.